Before we get started for this week's show, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in with a special shout out to those who support us on Patreon. From just $2 US a month as a patron, you can access extended podcasts and other bonus content. A shout out to our latest patron, Steve Curran. Thank you for supporting the EC movement and thank you to everyone else in our Patreon community. This week, we wrap big news surrounding global events and chat to Steve Richardson of the ICC Anti-Corruption Unit. Stick around. Hello and welcome again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. I'm Daniel Bezik and with me are the other main men of the show. First, the man known as Copernicus Cricket on Twitter, Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? I'm very well, Bez. I've uh, been baking. I made a nice citrus and olive oil cake, which was delicious. Had a good day. We're getting desperate. Are we in lockdown again, are we? <laughs> is that why we're recording four hours late? Because you were baking? <laughs> that is that is not the reason, no. <laughs> Glad you could uh, make time in your busy baking schedule for us, Nicholas. And of course, Tim Cutler. Tim, how are you? I'm not baking, but otherwise, good. Good to see international cricket back in an emerging world type with uh, Germany taking on Austria this last week mind having a, uh, a field like that in my farm but uh, yeah great to see yeah the first women's international cricket since the t20 world cup which was on our shores a few months ago uh, we'll talk about that in a second but the first news we want to discuss on this week's show well i can see all of us here on the long run ready to just unleash um, but we're gonna have to try and be civil and give everyone a go here Uh, Instead of effectively freezing the international calendar in the wake of the COVID pandemic, India have jumped the queue to take the reins of the 2021 T20 World Cup, with all qualifying teams now heading to India instead of Australia. Australia will host in 2022, and the other big news to come out of Friday's press release, the Women's World Cup has been pushed back a year as well. Uh, Plenty to discuss here, boys, and, and I'm sure both of you are eager to get your points out there into the open. Um, a few questions from me. I, I just don't understand what's going to happen if India are in no shape to host a 16-team tournament in just over a year's time with 16 teams. Um, from last count, I think India still have 2 million COVID cases. And I, I feel for a couple of teams that have been affected by this, PNG who would have been so keen to play in Australia. But I'll start with you, Nick. There's plenty of points to discuss here. We saw the news come in really early on Saturday morning, so I was tired and grumpy already. Um, but yeah, a lot of, we don't know what the politics are in these discussions and we don't know a lot of the, the details, but yeah, I'm scratching my head here and I'm sure you are too. Yeah, it, it just doesn't make sense. And this is the thing, you know, India and Australia are going to host the tournaments anyway, right? And so instead of just going in the order that they, they'd already agreed, Australia, then India, instead of using all the prep that the organizing committee had going on, and, you know, we talked to uh, Max Abbott from the ICC, who's on the organizing committee, and, you know, they were they were still working on that, and that's just all going to be basically flushed down the toilet, and India's going to have to start again. And India, they haven't got their house in order, you know, they, they haven't figured out the tax credit issue, which uh, has been an ongoing dispute with both the Indian government and the ICC for over a year now, and the Supreme Court still hasn't approved their new constitution. So in terms of the administration side of things, India have got it less together than Cricket Australia do. And then we get to the coronavirus situation, which, yeah, I mean, it's hard to know a year out. Um, Things could change. (laughs) A year is a long time in a pandemic. But the coronavirus situation looks a lot worse in India than it does in Australia. So, uh, you know, looking at all that together, 
it just seems like a massive gamble on the on the part of the ICC to hope that all of this will just be, you know, sorted out and fixed within 12 months. And, you know, we've, we've seen that the board still haven't even decided how they're going to elect a new chairman, let alone, you know, uh, who it's going to be. Yeah, I can only echo what you've said there. You mentioned Max Abbott. Um, he and every one of his colleagues uh, is about to be made redundant because of this decision. Um, we saw what they put on for the Women's T20 World Cup only months earlier. And I know that was a uh, pre-COVID world. There's only one staff member that survived the cull from that because he's the CEO of Cricket Australia now. But um Look, for all the work that's been done and the energy that was building up for the event, I'm just, I'm really disappointed for everybody involved and for all the fans that had tickets and were booking flights and, and holidays. And I know there's a whole lot more to consider around that on a, on a global scale, but yeah, it's getting worse and worse by the day in India. Um, and to see someone mentioning that somehow the BCCI were there, they were able to get better government support and I don't know if that means by creating a new town somewhere or locking a complete town down to be able to play it but you know I saw other comments on the Twitterverse saying that well you know Australia to hold a successful event needed to sell the tickets to make it worth CA's while where BCCI don't need the ticket income so they could potentially hold it in front of empty stadiums but I know everyone's desperate for cricket but sponsors want to see full stadiums um, wherever it is. So that's going to be suboptimal anyway if they end up holding a global event in front of empty stadiums. But just a head scratcher, you know, we haven't even talked about the Women's World Cup being being pushed back yet, but we're just looking at the men's T20 version. Like Australia was prepped and, and, and ready to go. Look, if there's, a, if there's more to it, we don't know, but it, it is just really a head scratcher. Tim, maybe you could uh, go into a bit more detail, you know, just as uh, an ex-cricket administrator, you know, what does the organising committee actually do? You know, what would they have been preparing for next year? Obviously, the Hong Kong Blitz was exactly the same level as a T20 World Cup, so I can... <laughs> I can I can go through I think it's probably better to direct people to our podcast with Max but in terms of the relationships that they have forged with all the governments because remembering all these stadiums aren't owned by the cricket associations that they would have been played at so all of the negotiations to get use of those stadiums and the, and the sharing agreements with governments and with the boards local engagement activities that would have happened pre and during events, um, hospitality packages that were being sold for, from day one, more or less went from when the, the, the original dates were sold. So many things are lined up and will have to be backed out now. And then, you know, the plans they probably were already putting in place for a post-COVID plan, um, whether bubble or not, or what, what could have been happened with all the contingencies and whether the games were going to be played in, in some of Australia's better states from a coronavirus point of view. But just so many moving parts and they had it going really well. Like, again, look at the, the Women's World Cup and how well that went. And having been involved, well, at least being there in India for the 2016 T20 World Cup, um, when things were still being done the day before our first match, you know, there's, there's a lot more work that's going to be done for these events to happen during the pandemic. So, yeah, to answer your question, a, a lot would have gone into this and to now turn it all off again and, and hope in a year's time 
or a year and a half's time that the same people are going to be available again to come work or if they're not working for, for other sports, who knows? It just, again, it beggars belief. Yeah, feel free to stop me here if I go a little bit too far. But Okay, stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at, at the schedule for the rest of this year coming where we are, you know, in the in the throes of, of everything that's going on, right? The IPL is so, so desperate to be put on that they're putting it in the UAE, putting everyone in a biosecure bubble. They're playing games in almost 50 degree temperatures uh, in the afternoon to suit a certain time zone that suits a certain somebody. And then you look at the CPL, which is set to go ahead in Trinidad and Tobago in another biosecure bubble. And you look at the times that that's being played at and the time zone that it really benefits is a certain someone as well. So I think, you know, looking at a lot of these events and how they're being planned out, they only seem to be benefiting one nation at the moment. And look, we can complain about it all we want, but until we see some change here, we're just going to be sitting here banging our heads against a brick wall in frustration, seeing everything sort of come around us. I know, you know, they they are the biggest earners in the game. They are probably the people that pump the most money into the game, but they're also the people that by far and away take the most money out from and profit from the game as well. So there's got to be a philanthropic element to this where where India need to give back for the sake of the game in general. And looking at the way that it's panning out now with this T20 World Cup, I, I saw an argument that was something along the lines of, well, they were going to host it in 2021 anyway. So why don't, you know, they just still host it in 2021. The world changed. The world is different to what it was six months ago. We're going to get here a year from now. And I could almost tell you right now and, and predict that in a year from now, we're going to be sitting here panicking with everything go. Everyone trying to work out what they're going to do for a T20 World Cup when they realize they can't host it in India. And here's Australia twiddling their thumbs, could host the BBL tomorrow, really, even in the midst of a pandemic, could host a BBL tomorrow. A T20 World Cup next year would have been within the realms of possibility and now to take it to the Women's World Cup next year and Jacinda Ardern and the New Zealand government have done an unbelievable job in, in coping with everything that's happened at the moment granted okay it is very difficult for teams to go in there to be in a biosecure bubble they haven't actually had the global qualifier for the tournament as yet as well which I think is probably the big point and Nick I know you made a really big point about it as well is that we actually have three empty spots at that Women's World Cup as of next year so I can understand why it's being pushed back and the qualifier you know not being run yet I can see that a lot of people didn't sort of put the two points together but it's going to be a really packed schedule for the for the women now too because they've got so many they've got the, the T20 World Cup after that the next year as well and look to see how that's all going to pan out I'm fascinated how it's going to go Nick yeah a lot of people were upset about the Women's World Cup being pushed back and I totally understand that because <laughs> this series with Austria and Germany is the first T20Is between women's teams that have happened at all in the last you know, however many months it's been since the World Cup final feels like a <laughs> feels like a decade. But I actually think it's fair enough that they they push back the Women's World Cup because honestly, yeah, as you say, they haven't sorted out qualifying. I think. I mean, New Zealand just this last week have had a couple of new coronavirus cases to deal with and, and you know, they're sort of clamping down hard on that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how keen they would have been to let in a couple of hundred people, you know, players, staff, associated uh, workers to have a global event. So, yeah, I think it's understandable that, that the tournament was pushed back under the circumstances, but as part of a broader pattern in terms of how they treat women's cricket, it doesn't look good and, and I totally understand that. And, yeah, I don't know, I, I think... Hopefully they can get more women's games played um, as as the men's game sort of slowly returns with the the biosecure procedures and and whatnot. Hopefully the women can have some tours as well because it, it yeah and and as you say the schedule is looking awfully crowded over the next couple of years. They've got a lot of events to cram in in very little time and 
you know, as I said before, I think it's it's a big gamble to just hope that everything's going to be sorted out and they will be able to sort of shove it all in in the time that remains because, you know, if something goes wrong, if, you know, if there's a another outbreak a couple of months ahead of the World Cup or something like that, you know, what are they going to do? If they actually fully cancel it, that's going to be a financial disaster for everyone involved. Yeah, and we're, we're reaching a new frontier in the women's game too where um, the schedules are eating away at each other. We saw India announce a, a women's IPL that runs concurrently with the women's BBL and, and a lot of people rightfully um, getting on that bandwagon and, and, and fighting for an open schedule for a lot of the, the women's players who, you know, their income streams are already small as it is and to have them, you know, cut basically by them having to make a, a choice between, say, playing, you know, in a 10-day tournament in, in UAE in the women's IPL or playing in a, in a WBBL. And even for some of the Indian players who are out here playing in that, I know that we're, we're getting off the topic of emerging cricket discussing that, but it, it is an issue that, that definitely needs to be um, addressed or at least brought up. And just to wrap up this little chat for now, uh, Austria and Germany's series is underway in Austria. Uh, We'll wrap that next week. But as we said, it's the first women's international cricket since the resumption of the game and the first game of cricket after the Women's T20 World Cup. So we'll talk about that in depth next week. Uh, The European Cricket Network as well putting on the stream for that too. More women's news and Francois van der Merwe has been appointed as the Namibia women's national head coach. 44-year-old van der Merwe comes from experience as the head coach of the South African emerging team in a tri-series against England and Australia and was also the coach of the National Women's Academy at the High Performance Centre in Pretoria. To the Netherlands, we have a new outright leader in this year's top classer. For more, here's Rod Lyland after that, part one of our chat with Steve Richardson. After six rounds of this season's top classer, HCC have moved clear at the top of the table, two points ahead of Punjab Rotterdam and VRA Amsterdam. HCC's batting is pretty solid, but it's the attack which is winning the matches. Hitter Overdyke is the competition's leading wicket-taker with 15 at 8.8, while Ollie Klaus has 12 at 7.08, spinner Clayton Floyd 10 at 10.6, and Overdyke's new ball partner Rainier Bailos has been chipping in as well. Punjab suffered their first loss last Sunday to Forberg at Westfleet, with an unbeaten 106 from their 20-year-old skipper Buster Lader, enabling them to reach 274 for four. An even 100 from Rehmat Zulfikar kept Punjab in the fight, but in the end they finished just 17 runs short. It's their batting which has been their greatest strength, with Steph Maiberg leading the way with 371 runs so far at 123.67, and he made his second century a couple of weeks ago with 127 not out against ACC. The RA, having recovered from their hammering at the hands of HCC, have continued their youth policy and moved level with Punjab by beating an almost equally youthful ACC. 17-year-old Vikram Singh, standing in as skipper for the injured Peter Boran and probably the youngest captain in the history of the competition, has been making consistent runs and is developing a useful opening partnership with Shiraz Razul, also 17, while 14-year-old spinner Luke Hartsink continues to take wickets. Excelsior Skidam, too, are closely focused on youth, and with three Cruzen brothers and the three sons of former national captain Luke van Trost in their side, it's something of a family affair. 20-year-old Luke Cruzen and Stan van Trost, two years younger, opened the batting against HBS on Sunday, and van Trost batted through to make 65 not out and see Excelsior to a comfortable victory. One of the outstanding individual performances of the season came from Sparta's Mudasa Bukhari, who smacked 120 not out against HBS on the 26th of July, and then took the first two wickets to set his side on the path to a 190-run victory. Sparta cut it a lot finer the following week, though, 
when their final pair added 42 runs to enable them to squeeze home against Forberg, for whom leg spinner Philippe Boissevin took six for 34. At the other end of the table, Dosti United Amsterdam are still without a win, having lost a hard-fought battle last Sunday to VOC Rotterdam, who collected their first points. Vinu Tavari and Wahid Masood are making runs and taking wickets for Dosti, but they're not getting much support, while for VOC, Corey Rutgers, another stand-in skipper after an injury to Peter Saylor, has been making the most of all his Australian grade experience in leading a side which has been reinforced by the return of Bobby Hanif and former international Hassan Malik, but is still struggling to settle into a winning pattern. You're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. I'm Jared Kimber. I am sure that this is Asif Karim's favourite cricket podcast. Well, for tonight's interview, Daniel has been called into work at the last minute, so it's just Tim Cutler and me, Nick Skinner. And over the last few weeks, we've had a number of fascinating conversations, talking to players, journalists, administrators, but tonight we're speaking to a man involved in a slightly mysterious facet of the cricket world from the ICC's anti-corruption unit, Steve Richardson, the Senior Investigation Officer. Steve, how are you going? Yeah, hi Nick, I'm good, thank you. Uh, so, I think we'll start off with your personal story. Um, how and why did you become an ACU officer? Well, my background is in policing. I did 30 years in the Metropolitan Police in London. I ran a murder squad in London for a number of years, investigating murders across the capital. Um, but really, my background is in investigating serious and organised crime, both proactively and reactively. So that's everything from drug trafficking through to armed robbery and all in between, I suppose. So that that pretty much what my background is. Um, cricket is something that I've I've always loved since I was very, very young. So when the opportunity came to start to work in cricket in 2012, um, I grasped it with both hands. That, that was actually for the England and Wales Cricket Board, the ECB, because they had just fairly recently, back in 2012, set up their domestic unit. So the ICC had had a, an anti-corruption unit for some time, but the domestic boards hadn't. So I went to work for the ECB in 2012, did four years with them, um, and then an opportunity came up in Dubai as the coordinator of investigations for the ICC. So I lead on their investigations and report to Alex Marshall, who's the general manager. And so here I am. I've been here in Dubai for just over four years now and enjoying it very much. So just looking, I guess, at the ACU, a lot of people probably uh, don't necessarily know how, how it works or what the structure is, you know, how many officers are there on the ground or, you know, in, in the office? And, and I guess, what are the specific roles that you all fulfill? So the, globally, the picture is that the ICC has an anti-corruption unit that is responsible for um, international cricket alone. And that's our jurisdiction. So we can work across the globe. We've got seven anti-corruption managers who work in different countries around the globe at international matches and other matches that we're contracted for. So things like the Global T20 in Canada, for example, is one of our contracted tournaments. Um, and then in Dubai, we've got eight staff, and that includes investigators, intelligence staff, tournament administration staff as part of the anti-corruption unit, and also Alex Marshall himself, of course. So in total, we've got about 15, but then we work very closely 
although they're independent, we work very closely with the anti-corruption units from the different jurisdictions, from as far afield as the West Indies with uh, Paul Slow down to Sean Carroll and his team in Australia. So in your role, uh, or I guess it's developed as well with you coordinating the, the investigations, what's the day in the life of, of one of those anti-corruption officers that you've got over of the seven that you have? So there's probably two different roles in terms of the anti-corruption managers. We all have the same end goal, which is protecting the game, protecting the players from the, the threat of corruption. Um, the anti-corruption managers have a very, very important role, but which boils down to building the trust and confidence of, of the players and those inside the game so that they can get the reports and the information that we need in order to protect the players. So when they go on a tour to a country they'll be with the players staying in the same hotels um staying in the on the same floors sometimes so they'll see the players at breakfast they'll see them when they're training obviously they'll be present at match day and they're there the whole time and what that enables them to do is actually build up a relationship with the players um, they get to know them the players get to know the anti-corruption manager and that just makes it much much easier when it comes to players reporting to the anti-corruption managers what their suspicions are what their concerns are their job is left to police the players in what you might call the traditional sense as to protect them and that is pretty much what we we ask for them to do on a match day they preserve the integrity of what we call the pmoa which is the players and match officials area um, within the stadium and that's a sterile area which is the players dressing rooms the areas that the players have uh, access to to stop people with malicious intent actually getting into that area it's a no phone zone so no communications devices are allowed in there with one or two exemptions and that will be the job of the ACMs on match day but it's then also part of their role to go out meet people talk to people build those relationships try and build a picture and an understanding of what is taking place everything that they do then gets reported back to us in Dubai where we assess it log it and our job then is to take that information forward and you know that all becomes part of the investigative process which i'm sure we'll go on to in in due course talked about that the flow of information from games back into the office how, how is that organized and i guess it may be very similar to your, your time in policing you know do you work together in teams or is it do you have partners or do you have like completely separate teams with with walls up between you on, on investigations how does that work on a day-by-day basis no, there's certainly no walls. I mean, the anti-corruption managers in the main work on, on their own. It's one anti-corruption manager at uh, a particular match or for a particular series until we get to ICC events. And then uh, very much all, all hands on deck. For example, at the 2019 World Cup, every team had a, an anti-corruption manager who was assigned to them and went round to each venue with the team. So they build up a very good relationship. But we're in, us in Dubai are in constant contact with the anti-corruption managers, speaking pretty frequently in order to get the reports from them, understand what is taking place. 
Ultimately, when it comes to a player reporting something, then that gets reported back to us in Dubai. And it's in the main us in Dubai who will take on the longer term investigations. So the anti-corruption manager's role, you could almost, um, you likened it to policing, you could almost liken it to the frontline police officers who are out in the community, getting to know people, speaking to people, getting a good picture and understanding of what is taking place. Um, and being available so that people can talk to them and report things if they want to. Certainly our experience is that uh, if you're there and available to people, then they're far more likely to report things to you and tell you what's happening. There seems to be a um, it's human nature that uh, the act of actually picking up a phone and, and calling someone is far more difficult than sitting next to them at uh, in a, a lounge of a hotel and, and telling them what, what's happening. So any anti-corruption organization you know independence is is key right and so what i guess procedures are in place in the icc acu around you know accountability uh turnover of staff maybe the security job security um in terms of you know, you're not worried about being sacked for stepping on toes like what's the independence um how is that guaranteed for your organization Okay. Well, we're ICC employees is the bottom line. So we're on the same contract here in Dubai as any other member of the ICC staff. I think there's probably a difference between being independent of the ICC and having operational independence. So that's the um, freedom, I suppose, to go where the evidence takes us, the freedom to not have an investigation stop for what people would call um, inappropriate reasons. Uh, That's certainly something that hasn't happened in all the time that I've been in cricket. My boss, Alex Marshall, is a former very senior police officer in, in the UK. And I know that he would guard and value that operational independence zealously. It's not something that he or I, for that matter, would allow to be compromised. So we're pretty clear that we would go where the um, evidence takes us. And if that takes us into some areas that, that make people uncomfortable, then that's something we have done. And we would certainly do again. As far as our oversight goes, um, we have something called the Independent Oversight Group, which is a group of eminent lawyers and sports integrity professionals who sit in oversight of what we do. Once a year, there's an oversight group meeting where they review everything that we've done. They review the people that we have charged, the people that we haven't charged, and the rationale and reason for that, probably just as importantly. They review our working practices, the things that we're proposing for the future and where we see the threats to the integrity of cricket in the future. And then they make a judgment and give advice and actually report to the board of the ICC in that. One thing I I should say is also sitting on that group is the president of FICA, the Federation of International Cricket Associations. So the players have a a voice on our oversight group, which gives them a voice directly into exactly what we do and how we do it. So I think you've explained pretty well the sort of the reporting structure there and, and where it fits in and that review board. But does the ACU then have any particular places otherwise on, on ICC committees for input into ongoing decisions about the, the global game? Well, Alex Marshall is part of the senior management team here at the ICC in Dubai. So he is frequently um, obviously speaking to colleagues from the senior management team about different aspects of our work and how that integrates into other parts of, of the ICC. 
be it into event, cricket operations, the development of the game, all of those departments. So yeah, we're very integrated into the rest of the ITC. Alex gets the chance to input into papers that go to the board and influence what happens at the board as as does every other uh, member of the senior management team and obviously we report to Alex and feed into into him so through that structure we get the chance to actually influence what goes on so yeah it's a very joined up process people are very much aware of what we're doing we don't operate in secret we are pretty open about as much as we can be um, within this building obviously there are operational details that we have to keep confidential to protect people who talk to us and report to us. But it's pretty open what we do. And yes, we get the opportunity to feed into how the sport is run um, globally. So you talked a little bit about what a, an ACU officer does, you know, policing the PMOA. But, you know, aside from physically keeping people out of that area, you know, what are you sort of keeping an eye out for if you're, um, you know, in charge of a test match? What are you looking for? Right. So the one thing that um, our uh, anti-corruption managers don't do is they're not sitting watching the cricket in order to see if they can detect corruption, because that is not the best way to detect corruption. Cricket, as in common with any other sport, is an unusual game. Strange things happen in sport and certainly in cricket. And the way to identify whether something strange happening is corruption or whether it's just a normal course of events in, in a match is not necessarily just through sitting there and watching the play. That can be useful, but our experience is that that is not the most effective way of detecting corruption. So our people are at the matches not in order to watch what the player's doing and um, see if any of them have bowled no balls or wides or any other event in the game. They're there as a point of contact. They're there to build relationships. They're there to ensure that the integrity of the PMOA is secured and preserved. And, and ultimately, they're there to protect the players from the threat of corruption. So if things go to plan in, in the sense of why you have officers at, at the matches and there is a tip that is received, what, what happens next? Well, if a tip, as you, as you put it, is received, if somebody makes a report to one of our anti-corruption managers that they've been approached, uh, the anti-corruption manager will uh, sit that person down and it might be a player, it might be a member of support staff, it might be somebody from the local board. They'll sit them down, they'll talk to them, they'll obtain an initial account from them, what it is they know, if there's any supporting or corroborative evidence of that, and then they will complete a report, send that through to us in Dubai, and then we will look at it, assess it, see whether it fits in with any other information that we hold. For example, do we know the phone numbers that have been used? Do we know the social media accounts that have been used? What are the links? What else do we know? And we will then determine our, our next course of action from that. So you, you talked about, you know, how fixing isn't usually quite so crass as, you know, a, a guy coming up and saying, please bowl a no ball in the seventh over. What, I guess, how does the ACU try and protect players from the more subtle approaches of fixes? We've seen reports from other cases of how they, you know, they try and befriend players or lull them into a sense of trust. So how do you, I guess, try and protect players from that sort of grooming, I guess you'd call it? 
Yeah, let, let me just deal with the issue of the no balls. It's interesting what you say there about the no balls. There's a real myth in cricket that you can bowl a no ball as a fix in itself, that you can go off and, and bet on somebody bowling a no ball. You can't, is the bottom line. If you walk into a, a bookmaker in England or Australia or somewhere where betting is legal and you say, I would like to put $10 on the third ball at a fourth over being a no ball, I doubt if the bookmaker would take that bet because they'd suspect you know something. And that's no different if you walk into an illegal bookmaker in somewhere where betting is illegal, like, for example, India. An Indian bookmaker, if you tried to place money on the third ball or the fourth over being a no ball, they wouldn't take it. The value of a no ball in betting is that it brings a free hit. It Runs can be scored off it for no penalty as far as gambling is concerned because you score runs off it and you might hit a four and that's four runs before a ball has even been bowled. You might then, from the free hit, another six runs, and that would then be 10 runs from, in effect, one ball. And that's the value of a no ball in corruption in cricket. So you cannot bet on a a no ball itself. So how do we protect players from grooming? I think the, the predominant way for that is to actually give them the knowledge and the information that they need in order to recognize that it is happening. Quite often we will see players not quite understanding that somebody taking them out for some drinks and taking a player out for dinner is, it could be innocent, but it could also be the prelude to a request for inside information, or it could be the prelude to actually trying to lure them into something more sinister. So the question that we ask players to ask themselves is, does this seem innocent? Why is this person asking me, am I playing tomorrow? Who is the team? And that can then progress, of course, onto honey traps, expensive gifts such as watches. So really, it's about giving the players the skills in recognizing that the reason that someone potentially is treating them like this is because they've got malicious intent further down the line. You've got to recognize what is happening. If you think that it's an attempt to groom you and corrupt you, as a player, you've got to reject it. And then we would ask that it's reported to us. So just on that point of reporting and you know not reporting, we sometimes see players uh, who get penalized for not reporting or failing to report. This is a bit more of a technical question, but what's the time frame for a player not reporting? So let's say a player gets approached and um, the ACU knows about it. And the player sort of, you know, thinks about it for a few days and then figures out that, oh, that was probably a corrupt approach. Are they going to then be pinged for failing to report because they didn't do it immediately? Or like, what's the, the process there? Well, I, I can say in the, the example that you're giving there, no, they're not going to be pinged for failing to report. If, if a report is such that it's borderline as to whether they think that there's anything corrupt, then that is not something that we would penalise anybody for. Where there is a blatant approach and a player should report it. So the examples we've already given where we want you to play to order and you can earn extra money in a match. What the anti-corruption code says is that a player must report that without unnecessary delay. Now, it doesn't define what unnecessary delay is, except for in one example, where if a player has been asked to play in a particular way in tonight's T20 match that you're playing in, and you don't report before that, 
that match, that you've had a corrupt approach, then that will always be an unnecessary delay. And when you think about it, there is a logic to that. If you end up in a position where somebody offers you money in order to get out early in a T20 match and you turn that down, but you don't report it until afterwards. If you've gone on and you've scored 50, then we can look at that and probably think, well, he hasn't got involved in the fix. If, however, you've gone for naught or five balls, there's always going to be a question mark there. And the question mark won't just come from the anti-corruption unit. It's going to come from your own teammates. So he's been offered money. He hasn't taken it, so he says, but has got out for naught or five balls. And I, I mean, I use the phrase he. In the main, the reports that we get of corruption are from the men's teams, but we are seeing it move more into the women's teams and tournaments as well in terms of the approaches that are being made to them. Um, so, yeah, it's very important that players report as soon as possible. If players don't report, then that doesn't give us the opportunity to investigate it, the opportunity to disrupt the person who has made the approach, be they inside or outside the cricket, and so therefore protect the rest of the participants who are involved in that event. If the corrupter is still left out there to carry on with what they're doing, then we don't get the opportunity to actually intervene and cut off their corrupt activities at the earliest possible opportunity. So it's, it's really important that players report to it. Um, and they can have confidence that when they do, that it's going to be treated sensitively and with confidentiality. And picking up on that uh, exactly, that I guess we've read bits and pieces and seen reports that a lot of these booking networks and fixing networks are, are linked to some really heavy organised crime syndicates and, and global ones at, at that. Um, what protections are there for players to, to come forward? Because you see so many stories where players, players are threatened and, and, and family and, and property and, and, and whatnot. So, so what is there from an ACU point of view when, when a player does come to you to report or approach? Okay, so two things there, the reporting of the approach and obviously the risk to players. It's really important not to over play the the risk to the the players yes there is organized crime that is involved in cricket fixing but not all organized criminals are dangerous and i would say not even all uh, match fixing is done by organized crime we see the whole broad spectrum of fixers everybody from lone actors through to organized crime and some of those have the potential to be dangerous, but certainly not the majority. So most fixers are actually more akin to fraudsters who would rather groom and befriend a player, blackmail them through a honey trap. They would rather do that more than they would actually threaten violence. Where it becomes difficult for a player is where if they agree to do something and then they try to back out, that is where a player is more likely to have a problem with a criminal network. Let me just say this, and I've now been doing this for eight years in cricket, and I've not come across one example of a player being threatened in order to commit match fixing. Not one example. Now, it's important not to be complacent, there have been times when we've managed risk by not using what we've been told, maybe not used something as evidence, just leaving it as intelligence and approaching the investigation from a different way. 
And that's probably one of the reasons that we've not seen threats to players, because where we consider that there is a risk to players, we don't put them in a position that would make it very difficult for them. But the vast majority of match fixers are not dangerous. Now, that's not just our experience in cricket. That's the experience of other sports as well. Uh, In the last couple of years, there's been a major review into the Tennis Integrity Unit. And that review looked at the risk and the threat to tennis players and came to the same conclusion. It's a big fear in players' minds. It's always a big fear. And actually, Tim, at the start of this, you started off by saying you hear reports about threats to players and risks to players. There's not that actually that many. You try and find them in Google, genuine examples of players being threatened by mafia-type characters. I think if you get involved with Italian organized crime in the United States, yes, you're going to be at risk. And I have been to countries and spoken to people who have approached players who I would consider that they are all organized criminals and that they are dangerous. But I've also been to countries and spoken to corruptors. Uh, I mean, one springs to mind where a, a player was approached by somebody in a hotel lobby. We identified who the suspect was, nothing to do with cricket at all. And certainly one of the things we do in cricket is we will try and spend time disrupting people who are outside the game, because that's where the vast majority of the approaches come from in cricket. They come from outside the game, not inside the game. So we traveled to the country, we tracked down the suspect, and he he turned out to be someone who had gambling issues. He was in debt through gambling. And in that particular country, gambling is legal. So it wasn't something that was illegal. He saw a player in the hotel reception, and he was more an opportunist. Now, he was paranoid that we would tell his wife what he'd done, that he'd approached a player. So we, what we would call disrupted him, warned him off, pointed out the error of his ways to him. And about three hours later, I'm, I'm in a hotel and my phone rings and it's him. And he calls me and he said, my wife keeps calling me. She's called me seven times in the last 15 minutes. Have you told her what I've done? And the answer to that was no, we hadn't. But he was a bit of an idiot, to be honest. And, you know, so they're not all dangerous, serious and organized criminals. And where our assessment is that they are, then we will act accordingly to to protect the players. We've not had a really serious, dangerous risk to a player. If that happened and we and a player reported to us that they were at serious risk from organised crime, then that's not something for the ICC anti-corruption unit. That's something for local law enforcement. That's something for the police in whichever country the player is to take on the protection of, of a player in circumstances like that. Now, we have the skills and the knowledge from our previous careers to identify when such a threshold would be reached, but we've not come across it as yet. And as I said before, that's in part because we've managed to risk and deal with things in a way that doesn't put players at risk. I think there are a couple of things that come to mind off that, but something that I saw very interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong because I may have missed it, but the ICC actually had a an amnesty for reporting in respect to corruption surrounding cricket in, in Sri Lanka. Can you talk a little bit about that and success or otherwise and whether you see a, a potential for wider application of amnesties in trying to root out corruption as much as possible and maybe in certain markets or even globally? Yeah, amnesties are are an interesting thing. I mean, Sri Lanka had very specific circumstances. They they were in an extremely difficult place when it came to corruption within cricket and the threat to 
to their players. The players, um, our assessment, were vulnerable, extremely vulnerable. We knew from some of the reports that we were getting that there were probably things taking place that hadn't been reported to us. And of course, one of the reasons that people won't report is that what Nick was saying earlier, once it goes past a particular threshold, then they're potentially going to be guilty of failing to report. And we recognise that that can be a barrier to, to reporting, which is why it's not a blanket given that if you don't report for a set period of time, you will be charged. That is absolutely not the case. So the amnesty was actually put in place for the specific circumstances of, of Sri Lanka. It's a very, very unusual case. And it did draw out further information. It did draw out other investigations. And probably at the moment, uh, I best not say anything further about those. In terms of using an amnesty elsewhere, we're always alive to the fact that it might be useful, but it has to be used carefully and uh, sparingly because the you don't want players to wait for the next amnesty to come along before they actually report. Look, we, we don't have a huge appetite for prosecuting players for failing to report. We would much prefer that reports came in in a timely way. But when we're considering whether to prosecute the player, there, there are two tests on any, any charge. One is, is there sufficient evidence? And the second is, is it in the interest of cricket, in the interest of the sport to actually prosecute that player? And in assessing and weighing up those two tests, um, all factors are taken into consideration. So as well as things against the player, so for example, the weight of the evidence, there are things for the player taking into, in, into account as well. And in the case of failing to report, it would be what are their reasons that they failed to report? Um, everything will be looked at and considered. But no, there's not a whole raft of players who are at risk of getting prosecuted for failing to report because they report what, what information they know late. So, we, we sort of touched on this, but as we know, betting is legal in some places and illegal in others. Do you think... Uh, legalizing gambling in, say, India would actually help, even if they don't have match-fixing legislation, just the fact that the industry is more in the open, that you'd be able to maybe regulate it a bit better? Well, so what we find in jurisdictions where gambling is regulated is is it gives us access to um, what is going on in the betting market. I'm an issue of whether gambling is regulated in in India is obviously a matter for the Indian government, and we would always leave that for them to decide what they do. In the regulated market, then what it means is we can go, as a sports governing body, we can go and access information from the regulated betting markets. We can look at data, and if we hit the threshold, if um, the gambling company is satisfied that we meet a particular threshold, then we can sometimes obtain account-level information from them to see whether there are, are any links to investigations. So that's what, what regulating gambling enables us to do. It also enables us to access the information that reads the betting markets. Because what we talked earlier on about one of the ways that you can detect match fixing, and one way you don't detect match fixing is by purely sitting there and looking at the game. But there is a way of detecting match fixing by actually looking at the movement of the betting market. And if, for example, a side loses three wickets very quickly to a, a strong side, you would expect them to not be the favourite to win that match because they're obviously in a bad position 
And so you would expect the betting markets to reflect that. If, however, all the money is going on that side who are in a weak position, all the money is going on them to win the match, is that because somebody knows something, somebody has information that there is a fix afoot, or is it just somebody making a mistake in, in the way that they're placing the bet? So if the money in a betting market is going against what would reasonably be expected, sometimes that is an indicator of corruption. It's not um, a given just because money is going in a different way that it is corruption because there are many, many reasons why it might be happening. But that, along with what takes place in the match, is one way that we detect match fixing. Now, it's certainly not a panacea. Uh, an algorithm looking at betting patterns needs to be coupled with other information. It needs to be coupled with what is taking place in the match, uh, a human element of assessing that in, in order to come up with an assessment of whether there's anything to actually investigate or not. That concludes part one of our chat with Steve Richardson. Make sure to tune in for part two on our show next week. But for now, on behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner, and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.